got a lot to say about the world I occupy every day. But when I say what's on my mind, I find I piss people off. You're listening to What the Folk, real talk and raw tunes for revelationary times. I'm Joy Damiani. I'm Sarah Baranowskis. Our guest on this episode is Dr. Ingrid Walker. Pleasure is health and, and um, being happy and content and having, and not just like contentment, but like intoxication and then coming back down from intoxication. Like that's, that's, a, that's a muscle I want to exercise in my life. Ingrid is an associate professor of American studies at the University of Washington, Tacoma. Her work is motivated by a commitment to understanding the systems that create social inequities in the United States and, in particular, what will change the social systems of law, public health, education, media, and culture that affect us. She is a polydrug user whose research and activism focus on destigmatizing drugs and the people who use them. Her book, Hide, Drugs, Desire, and a Nation of Users, addresses the social construction and systematic biases of various drugs particularly the erasure of pleasure for some users. She also has an awesome TED Talk that we will link to in the show notes. We hope you will enjoy this incredibly insightful conversation with Ingrid as much as we did. And we really enjoyed it a whole dang lot. But anyway, before we get started with that, please go ahead and give us some rating love on... um, iTunes and subscribe, you know, do the five stars and the reviews if you possibly have a moment, because that does make a difference in our world. And you know, you know, you like to make a difference, right? This is one easy, um, you know, free way. We're going to get things started with a song from our dear friend Lola Jean Darling off her new album Dream Queen. This song is called Dreaming Awake. Thank you. 
Like our goal in creating this podcast was to kind of just have interesting conversations with all of the smartest, most interesting, creative people we knew and like record that. Sh- yeah, so. that's basically it. <laughs> well, that's my fantasy. So I'm always, I'm always like amazed that people actually are finding time somehow in their really busy lives to do this. It's like, oh. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's, that's the benefit of not being on a tenure track appointment, I guess. <laughs> so, yeah. Horrible, horrible, horrible system. Horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Before we go down the horrible system rabbit hole, because I know we're going to at some point, <laughs> I feel like we should open up with our easy softball question. Yeah. Sarah, do you want to lob it or should I? Sure, I can lob it. <laughs> How's your apocalypse going, Ingrid Walker? So I have, so we bought a spaceship at the beginning of the apocalypse. We got a van. <laughs> <laughs> um, awesome. We got a, a, a camper van. And um, when I was a little kid, I grew up in a VW camper van, but we got a more fancy, you know, I say bougie <laughs> camper van. <laughs> and, um, and it was the perfect thing to get because it's enabled us to sort of be in our own little reality, but go other places. So my apocalypse is not as housebound as some, and um, mm. that's good. That's good. And I'm healthy, and my people are healthy. So the apocalypse so far, I'm faring better than most and feeling my privilege all over the place. Yeah, I think we would both probably agree with that as well <laughs> with our mm-hmm. relative experiences. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Am, I'm stunned. <laughs> it. This, this whole situation really has uh, drawn some pretty stark contrasts between who has the privilege to weather the apocalypse and comfort and who is barely, if not at all, weathering it. Yeah. Yeah. So. Even my, my son, who, you know, is a white man in America, so I'll just say that, you know, um, but is also just a recent college grad, started a job in his field, kind of a super entry-level job in the theater, and of course, theater's closed. <laughs> Mm-hmm. No sign of ever opening again, and so he's working in restaurant work, and just to be able to survive, they and I thought it was 
smart the restaurant did this, but it's brutal. They put, to keep people safe, they put them in pods, and so they had to work back to back shifts. So they're working fourteen hours and then day off, and then fourteen hours, right? And so, or my sister who was working at a grocery store, and you know, just like dealing with just all of that, and then you realize, wow, I'm really buffered from the apocalypse mm-hmm. in my spaceship. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I relate. <laughs> yeah. Me too. So one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is, um, so we met kind of with our intersecting work on, you know, drug policy reform and studying um, issues around drugs in an academic context. One thing I find so compelling about your work is a lot of times we center these conversations around harm reduction or criminal justice reform and economics and all that's really important, but we don't tend to discuss the role of pleasure via, via like the vis-a-vis, I don't know if I'm saying that right, <laughs> um, you know, the majority of drug users, as your research highlights. So I would just love to hear a little bit more about, you know, kind of summarizing your research agenda and the big picture of that agenda and what inspired you initially to go down that path. Yeah, so I'm a, um, I wasn't trained in the field of, of drug research, critical drug studies. Uh, I had mm-hmm. a whole other academic career. And then um, what brought me to this was I just couldn't, I couldn't stand to listen to the way drugs are being talked about both in public policy and in popular culture, which is my other field. Mm-hmm. Um, and in popular culture, it was just the constantly wrong representation of, of drug use. Um, you know, n- never, never mind that most of the representation of drug use is absolutely uh, disastrous in most popular culture. So you could never use a drug without hitting rock bottom and disaster. But just often it was wrong. Like they, you know, they would be using one drug and have, and, and then be exhibiting characteristics that you probably wouldn't have after using that drug. And it started to really bother me. And I realized that nobody ever, I, that I think a lot of this was being done with no knowledge of what drug use actually is like. Right. So, so it would be like if you'd never uh, had sex before and you were asked to explain what an orgasm was, well, you might be able to read up on it, right? But it's different if you've experienced it. So. Um, yeah, so my research started to become about uh, kind of first critiquing those representations and that, and that vocabulary um, of experiences that was in public policy. And then I started getting really interested in why we were shying away from talking about pleasure. Um, and, you know, clearly it's the moralistic assumptions we have about drug use and the way in which they've been stigmatized, especially street drugs have been stigmatized and the people who use them have been stigmatized. But I also started to realize I wasn't sure how many researchers use drugs. Um, And if they were, did they feel safe enough or okay to inflect their questions or research agenda with that knowledge? And so the most recent project I'm working on, um, co-PI with Dr. Danny Ompad at NYU School of Global Public Health, and we are doing a survey of drug researchers to ask about, do you use drugs? Uh, if you have, or if you do, what drugs do you use? And, um, and all kinds of questions about that, but then specifically, how does it influence your research if it does? And just hoping to get um, a broad sample of people. We're, it's an English speaking survey, so it's global. And we're hoping to really get a sense of our is disclosure, even if disclosure, you know, overt disclosure, I'm a drug user is not possible. And I think very few people do that. Um, is disclosure of, of lived experience or at least, you know, experience <laughs> at all possible within your research agenda. I think that will really shift our thinking about how research is or is not interrogating the actual experience of drug use. That was long ended. No, that, <laughs> that was great, great though. Yeah, I mentioned yeah. I'm a professor. <laughs> 
Yeah, but that is that's it's really important, I think, to be able to have this conversation in academic and professorial voice because you know we everything, the drugs are certain drugs are so stigmatized, and I think I remember when I first started talking to my family members in a very like matter of fact way about about you know yeah I took some LSD last night you didn't even notice you know and they're just like what and I'm like yeah no this is what happens this is how I experienced it let me tell you about it and they're looking at me like how can you possibly be having this like cogent matter-of-fact conversation about this like scary substance it's like well because it's not scary if you talk about it so thank you so much for putting it in those terms. Yeah, I actually, no, I really appreciate what you just said because <laughs> I'll tell you a story about that in a minute, but I think, and the reason they think that it's a scary substance is those films and television mm-hmm. shows and the representation it has, you know, where it is, it's, um, oh my God, his name just flew out of my head. It's your Hunter Thompson. If you take LSD, mm-hmm. right? Like you're seeing right. lizards crawling around the floor and, and, um, or you're jumping out of windows. Right. And, and so that people who do use psychedelics are rarely, you know, yeah, you can trip and be around people and they have no clue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's actually confronting in and of itself, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, so um, recently in the article I wrote, I told a story about um, talking. I've been working with these people for 12 years, but it was about eight years into knowing them and partying with them and working with them. We're at a party and one of my colleagues said, well, you don't use drugs. And I, I was... <laughs> <laughs> And I, but, you know, being the good academic I am, I put on like my, my sort of like step outside that my reaction, like, why does she think that? And I realized, well, she never sees me using drugs because none of my friends in that friend group, my colleagues Mm -hmm. use drugs. So I will use them and then go to the party, you know, like whatever Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, I will have to use it. I don't wait till I get there to use it necessarily. You you might, if, if people shared it with you, you would share it. But if you don't, you show up and you're already, you know, having dropped whatever you dropped or smoked whatever you smoked. And, um, she was stunned to hear that I used drugs and I was stunned to hear that she, you know, she didn't know that. And it made me realize still how much even, um, I not intentionally, but just, I, I, I sort of move through communities who do or do not use drugs. And I sort of respond accordingly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It influences my behavior. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I definitely resonate with that for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things I thought was so interesting about, like, I have your really excellent book here. Hi. <laughs> which we will link to in the show notes for bookshop. Read the full title because I have bad eyes. And oh yeah. I and there's, what it says. And I'm like in the dark in my cave over here. Um, it's high drugs, desire and a nation of users. Um, and I think, I mean, one of the things that was really striking to me is how you cite all the data about, you know, there's like this ginormous segment, the vast majority of people that use drugs that are completely left out of the conversation, left out of the cultural milieu of you know representation like there's just invisible and that's probably you know at least I would say probably the three of us here (laughs) are part of that giant majority so yeah it's we'd love to hear a little bit more about that data because it is really striking when you unpack it this is it's this great chicken and egg problem because so the um I didn't know this when I wrote the book. It was only later when I worked with uh, Jules Netherland and I at the Drug Policy Alliance. She runs the uh, Department yeah. of Academic Engagement. Um, she and I did a kind of a thought experiment with two groups of researchers. And we brought them together in this kind of workshop environment and we called it Research Utopia. And it was like, you know, if you could research anything around drugs, like what would you research? And 
and they're very interdisciplinary and there are people with lived experience, people without lived experience and just kind of set them to this task for a day. And it was so fascinating seeing what they came up with. And one of the things they were all very clear about was that the NIDA, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, uh, is you know really skewing research in one direction. So Jules and I did this uh, article about just how much that influences the research agenda. If you're all if 80% of the funding in the world for drug research comes from the National Institute of Drug Abuse, there's an assumption inherent mm-hmm. in that. And 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 add to that that uh, and Nora Volko runs this. Um, this Institute of Health and, and recently has been very popular in, in uh, public media uh, talking about things and she's sort of shifting her perspective a little bit, especially vis-a-vis, uh, back to vis-a-vis. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it. Why don't we have enough English words? We have to keep borrowing. Uh, yeah. Damn um, bastard language. <laughs> I actually love that though. I like that people sort of sprinkle words in that. Yeah. <laughs> What is that word? I don't know what it means, but I like hearing it. Yeah. So, so she's been talking a lot about the ways in which drug, um, I, I think she's, she's trying to show a bigger, a, a broader umbrella under which uh, they think about substance abuse, but it's still substance abuse. And they, she is a, neuro, um, a neuroscientist and most, a lot of what NIDA used to do almost exclusively was neuroscience for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And so we're really, I mean, if you think about neuroscience, we're not really asking questions about pleasure probably, right? They're interested in the brain disease model of, of um, substance use disorder or addiction. So 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 much of our research, I'm, I'm kind of coming back to your question, is is really about people with extreme problematic drug use and and then some pretty extreme theories about that, whether it's completely mm-hmm. biological or, you know, so only, only really more recently are we seeing a lot more ethnography become part of that research base. But the people who are asking questions, again, may or may not be people who understand the kinds of questions they could be asking, right? And so there's right. this whole, the research agenda is just really skewed by the notion that people who use drugs tend to have problems with them. The irony is, as I started like sussing that out with people and I was researching the book, I, I realized researchers know that that's not the case. But, and yet somehow our research keeps going in that direction because that's yeah. what the funding is. The funding is there. Mm. Yeah, so it's this chicken and egg, you know, problem, and I, um, that's why Danny and I did this survey, which is unfunded, by the way. Uh, we're doing it mm-hmm. our, um, out of our spare time because we really want to find out. Like, are researchers operating with lived experience, and if so, mm-hmm. would they ask different kinds of questions if they could? Uh, and then, how can we create environments in which they can ask those questions? Because the majority of people I know <laughs> have encountered in my life, and I've moved like 45 times, like I've encountered a pretty wide swath of people around this country, yeah. you know, they find pleasure in whatever substances they do. I went on a camping trip mm-hmm. with some friends this weekend, and there was a lot of drinking going on. I don't drink very mm-hmm. much because alcohol doesn't like me. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, there was deep pleasure in, in their mixing cocktails. And, you know, and, and so it's like we can imagine pleasure with one drug. Um, or some of them are smoking cigars. You can imagine pleasure in that environment. Mm-hmm. Um, I was smoking weed and sharing that, and people were doing other things. And, and mm-hmm. we could also imagine pleasure in that environment. But generally, we have, our, I mean, I think weed has gotten to a point where people recognize that it's pleasurable, yeah. but it only got there because we first said, but it's a medicine, <laughs> right? Right. That's, yes. And it's so interesting, right? Like something that really resonated with me. Um, watching your TED talk and just reading some of, you know, reading up on your work 
is the way that it's we talk about pleasure as like not being important enough to to focus on like taking substances for pleasure's sake shouldn't be something we have to justify because they're also medicinal and also in a sense pleasure is medicinal right? <laughs> we're all yeah. better when we're happier when we're ple- when we're having a good time and you know yeah it's like what you're saying like alcohol isn't your friend it's not extremely my friend either and and i think that because our culture allows us to see alcohol as the permissible pleasurable substance it looks at us weird when we're like, no, that actually isn't the substance for me, but LSD is and mushrooms are and, um, you know, a little bit of MDMA sometimes. And people, for some reason, well, for the reasons that we're talking about, are not accustomed to see, you know, those outcomes as just as viable and just as healthy and just as necessary. So, so thank you for that, for bringing, shedding light on that. If you want to, I mean, I know we're kind of, we're wrapping around a few different topics here, but that was, um, one of the ones that Sarah and I both talked about as being one that's not talked about enough. I was just going to jump in because I also like, for me, like I had to quit drinking because I had a problem with it. I was actually on the spectrum of problematic alcohol users, but I'm not sober. And it's interesting navigating that space with people because I'm like, they hear like, oh, you don't drink? How long have you been sober? And I'm like, I'm not sober. I use other things. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and none of them gave me the problem that alcohol did. You know, so it's a really interesting, yeah, for me that rings especially, um, that just especially resonates because I have had a very deep problematic relationship with alcohol that has not translated to other substances. And it's such a bizarre conversation to have, like people don't have a container for it. And sobriety, especially as, you know, constructed to 12 step framework is so, Mm -hmm. has so many assumptions around it and so much, you know, the whole virtue um, relationship to being sober, which is is the antithesis to seeking pleasure. Right. And so so there's some, there's one of those tensions um, and I want to say, I mean, I have a lot of friends who are AA um, for life and it really worked well for them. And that's been a really good thing. So I'm not, I'm not denigrating all step programs, but it, it's a yeah. particular framework. Um, and I say that because I have another friend who's lifelong alcoholic and then went through all kinds of extreme things in his life and came back to realize that he could have a glass of wine in the mm-hmm. evening and be fine. And it took him about 18 years to realize that. But then when he did, people were just like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? Right. Because mm-hmm. they had put him in this framework, which is like either or. And, mm-hmm. and so I think there's a spectrum of use that is possible for some people. For some people, it's either or, um, you know, but but just as you said, there's no there's no framework for talking about these kinds of things um, that you could you could choose not to use one substance you had problems with, which you could absolutely be OK with using all these other substances in a very you know sort of self-regulating way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just going to say that one more thing, which I think this is the big thing. This is my big kind of like, I don't know, aha moment for me when I was writing the book is I start, I, I spend a lot of time watching people get loaded on alcohol in my life because I don't drink very much. And so I mm-hmm. some people are just yeah. And you make up, I mean, at some point you become an ethnographer, you know, an, an, an mm-hmm. ethnographer and watching people. And I began to realize that drunkenness is so different than any other intoxicated state I know. And uh, unless, and I'm not talking about like extreme use of other drugs, super extreme use, but pretty much you can get pretty high. 
high on a lot of other things and not have the kind of behavior you have with drunkenness. But because alcohol is the experience that most people have because it's permissible, it's what they think other substance use will be like, right? And I think mm. that's so interesting. I think so much of the misunderstanding mm. of those substances has to do with it's being refracted through that lens of drunkenness. Yeah. Mm. Nothing like that. Wow. Right. So, yeah. That's just so, the alcohol thing keeps bringing up more and more for me. So another thing with the AA model and a reason it didn't resonate with me was like, for the rest of your life, you're labeled as an addict and you're supposed to carry that label around with you. And when I was in my early days of quitting drinking, I went to, you know, some recovery group, meditation groups, and people would be like, I'm an alcoholic addict over 11 years. And they would go around the circle and I was like, 11 years and you're still defining yourself that way is that really actually serving you anymore and maybe it was and what it was what they needed and no judgment having seen that fucking rock bottom myself I whatever people need to get them out of is you know totally fine but it just that to me was really striking that that's the only model that we offer people as a way out when there are so many other ways out yeah the the thing that stands out to me around that is um the way that you know, we also have created a certain amount of acceptability for drunken behavior in this culture, but we have no such acceptability of other types of influence. Like, you know, maybe I drink too much coffee and I'm like feeling really sensitive to like everything. But like, aside from that, you know, with, with, um, with cannabis, with any other kind of influence, like, People don't give you permission to be a little distracted because you're high, even though that's actually like fine. I would so much rather be around someone who's distracted and loopy and like kind of giggly and not focused than somebody who is like aggressively trying to get my attention to tell me something I don't care about, which is <laughs> they've usually... already told me five times. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. yeah. And there is a, um, so, so one of the things I don't enjoy about alcohol, the reason it doesn't like me, I think, is that I feel immediately, like, dislocated from myself mm. in ways that I'm just like, whoa. Like, I'm, and I mean, like, after a glass and a half of, you know, Prosecco, I can feel like that. So it, it mm-hmm. really has a strong effect on me. And not like I'm sloppy, but just sort of like, I don't feel like I'm in my brain or my body anymore very clearly. Mm-hmm. And I think some people, that's a really welcome sensation. Mm. Uh, and uh, you know even camping with my friends this weekend they're getting louder and more boisterous and telling me the same story four times and I was just like okay you know I'm gonna go hang out over there with the cat I'm a cat we could (laughs) 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 I'm gonna hang out with my familiar over here yeah (laughs) we can we can relate but it's it's interesting um I think it's so so you know, you know, the, the notion of the phenomenology of different substances has always been so interesting to me because, you know, people can take different things. Like ask people, some people can say, just like I did about alcohol, like, oh, weed is not my friend. And, and I'm like, mm-hmm. Good you. you know that because you don't want to get paranoid all the time when you're at a party that sucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, but it wouldn't it be lovely if we could live in a culture where people said, oh, that works for you. Cool. I think so-and-so has some of that. Like, you know, if you arrived at a gathering and, and there was a mm-hmm. sense of this is what works for you and, and we could, we could sample and we could be, in, in, you know, exposed in ways that were safe um, and find out what works for us, uh, you know, without having to be not only criminalized, but really stigmatized. Mm-hmm. 
if that was a part of health class growing up, like if if kids were actually taught, like this is what the substances do, this is how you can try them out in a way that's not gonna fuck you up in a way that you don't want to be fucked up. Like I think one of the things I would love to see us normalizing in our in our culture in our society is you know the idea of like drug mentors or spirit guides or as you sometimes call them with I don't know we used to say that with LSD like okay who's going to be my spirit guide for this journey because it's important to have um to have a, a sense of you know shared understanding and experience and we're not just like embarking on every drug experience like it's nobody's ever been through it but because we have all this stigma everyone has to kind of like forge a new path instead of being able to like you know just like post on Facebook like hey I would really like to try LSD for my first time this weekend is anybody out there who's tried it who can like be my buddy and you know be there with me like why should that be any different than I need a sober driver for my bachelorette weekend or whatever? Mm-hmm. You know, I think you, you hit on something I think is super important, which is, and this bears out in the research, I mean, Howard Becker in the 1950s uh, and studying marijuana showed us that friend networks, uh, you know, these, these friend groups and friend networks are how people, and people had to be taught how to use marijuana. It wasn't patently mm-hmm. obvious, even if they smoked cigarettes, it wasn't obvious that, that, that you would, you know, you'd smoke marijuana differently than you would smoke a cigarette. And mm-hmm. um, they had to be taught about what the effects were. Um, they had to be taught that they could have a, they had to be taught a language, a vocabulary for the effects of what they're experiencing. Right. And so, so he mm-hmm. does really great uh, series of studies about that. And so we know that part of harm reduction um, is really education. Right. And I think a lot of us like Colorado and Washington were two states that kind of you know, were on the forefront of putting out legalized recreational marijuana and, it was really interesting to see some of the early efforts at educating people about edibles, for example. It's like, okay, yeah. take a third. Yeah. <laughs> and I really appreciate it because I'm like, you know, if you don't know that and you go and gobble these two brownies because they're really good, you're going to be really sad and probably never go back to trying marijuana again, you know, mm-hmm. so I did that. But it was funny to see, um, you know, sort of a business try to be that educator as a friend group because I had always learned about drugs through friends and so they you know be in, you, I would be introduced to a drug by a friend mm-hmm. uh, and I had great experiences you know in my life where people would be like hey do you want to try this and I'd be sure tell me about it you know and we'd have a very informed conversation about it and then mm-hmm. try it and I realized not everybody gets that and sometimes they're at a rave and somebody hands them something and they try it but we need to be taught not to do that right we need yeah. to right <laughs> <laughs> yeah and that hits on something that I, you know, I'm always really interested in and have actually thought about fleshing out into paper is the idea of sort of like the underground information economy around drugs, things like whether it's Eurowid or peer sharing groups and what's kind of had to sprung, spring out out of necessity as a harm reduction measure. Yeah, um, I, you absolutely should write. I wish you would write that paper. Yeah. I think that'd be a brilliant paper because... So I, I have a class called Drugs in U.S. Culture, and it's kind of a 360 around drugs, everything from law and policy to um, medicine and treatments, concepts. Um, it's a 400-level class, but anybody can take it from any different discipline, which I really like because they bring their own disciplinary ideas in. And I had an education student who was also a mom of teenagers, and she was like, you know, I really want to create, and also a substance user herself, so I would love to create the anti-dare, like an informed harm reduction-based, and, and it turns out, that, and I said, oh, the Drug Policy Alliance actually has a really great curriculum. She's like, yeah, but I would like it to be a curriculum that 
and so she did for her final project, she did a part of that curriculum and it was, um, she worked with alcohol because, you know, again, it's permissible, but right. it, it was simple things. Like she took a pint glass and sort of like an old fashioned glass and a shot glass. And, and she was like, you know, this is a serving of beer. <laughs> this is a serving of, you know, this is a serving of whatever she had wine. This is a serving of, um, spirits. And she had our teenagers measuring them out. And, you know, and, and it was, it was really interesting just to see her approach to, you're taught this at some point, but we forget it with alcohol because again, it's ubiquitous. You go out and you sit down at any restaurant that serves alcohol before they take your order for anything else. They want to know what you want to drink, right? The assumption is mm-hmm. drink on first. Yeah. You know that that's, that's like, you know, a financial decision on the part of restaurants because that's how they <laughs> But it, it's mm-hmm. also, it has an effect, which is it, it educates people about drugs and, it, you know, that drug. And it also, um, yeah, creates a place in which people use it probably more than they would. Right. Yeah, I, I love that, that the informal information economy is really important because where do you find out about using cocaine or meth the first time you use it, right? You know, it's probably from the person you got it from. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then you're sort of relying on whatever information they have or, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, that's the thing I appreciate about, um, I don't want to get us too off topic, but, you know, these sort of younger generation of kids and like psychedelic club and like that have kind of grown up, I think, not only with resources like Eroid, but with a culture that's maybe a little more open, just like that much more open that like seeing how they talk and take care of each other. I'm like, oh, my God, when I was 18 at the University of Vermont in 2000, this was <laughs> I was not having to, I was it was trial and error. And sometimes <laughs> sometimes emphasis on error, you know, so it's um, I appreciate that that seems to be shifting, at least in pockets. But yeah, Dan Safe is a really great example of that, I think, or the yeah. project, right, where people are really mm-hmm. trying to educate you. Um, about the mind-body-spirit continuum of drug use, too. Yeah. That is a really... Could you talk more about the mind-body-spirit continuum of drug use? Because I absolutely love that phrase just now, and I don't think I've ever heard anyone use it. I, I think I know what you mean, but... Um, I would love to to hear you kind of flesh that out a little bit more because um, we don't talk about drugs in any sense as being related to spirit, especially. We talk a lot about mind and body, but um, we definitely don't talk about full self-integration. Yeah. Well, I think, well, I, I'm going to guess that people who, you know, and, and you know, you know that if you use psychedelics, probably you have talked about that, but you, but we're not led to think of it that way. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I, this goes back to the notion of pleasure. Like I, I thought you said something really important, which is like pleasure is health and, mm-hmm. and, um, being happy and content and having, and not just like contentment, but like intoxication and then coming back down from intoxication. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's a, that's a muscle I want to exercise in my life. Like, right. I want to have experiences that are sort of exciting and full blown and some that are sort of, you know, quiet and content. Um, and I, and I talk about this in the book that, and sometimes we're using drugs just to get to kind of a baseline, whether it's for me, it's caffeine, you know, like just mm-hmm. not feeling solid today. Like I want to you know, feel a little sharper. And I think if we could be honest about the way in which we use drugs we, to man, it's self-management. So much drug use is self-management, and management not in the control like the liberal, <laughs> neoliberalist control sense of self-management, but self-management in a healthy in, in a healthy self, a happy health, healthy self. And 
So for example, we take our cat camping, which has everything to do with the mind, body, spirit continue, I swear. <laughs> and so she, we got her as a kitten, we threw a harness on her and we took her everywhere and she goes everywhere with us. And, and people were kind of freaking out because we would just leave we'd be out there like in the woods. We could we'd check on her every once in a while. Aww. And yeah, that's great. It stresses her out a little bit first and then she relaxes into it. And then she's super happy in ways that she's not, even though she's an outdoor cat here without a leash, you know, and um, we talk about different kinds of experiences. I said, you know, if I was an animal, I would want to have a lot of experiences. I'm pretty sure I would. Like, you know, like it's, yeah. you see that she finds something new, how excited she is. And I don't know, but, but she does it with this full experience that I feel like we've become so divorced from because we have this giant brain and it kind of gets mm-hmm. in the way of us understanding that integration. And I think the integration that mind, body, spirit continuum also for me comes from yoga because I'm a uh, deep yoga practitioner. And, mm-hmm. um, one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite uh, yamas is I think it's a yama, not a yama is, is Svadhyaya, and that notion of self-study, self-exploration, knowing yourself, um, and it's it's very much about so the, you know, the eight limbs of yoga. There's you know there's sort of you can do the asana practice, you can do the body part, but you really got to do the pranayama part, right? Just slow the brain. Mm-hmm. So you can do the asana practice and vice versa. But really, it's about the spiritual connection, right? So you're doing all these things, and it takes a long time to learn all those things, really, to get to this next place of the spiritual thing. And I think a lot of the, our drug use mimics that. Um, it's like you know, so I'm, I'm doing a weekend away from people and I'm going to eat some mushrooms, you know, so I'm going to do like, I'm going to go out with friends, like a couple of friends, we're going to take mushrooms. And that's a mind, body, spirit experience. Um, yes. And, <laughs> and I do it to, to sort of as a cleanse for the too much time I spend in my work research life, right. You know, or the tension, mm-hmm. the stress of whatever it is I'm experiencing. I don't think we give ourselves, Western culture is renowned for this, right? We, we pack leisure into this tiny little part parcel of our lives. But I really, um, I mean, I sound like a, a rampant hedonist and it's ironic because I'm really a workaholic, but But I feel like we have lost the sense. Um, and, I, and a lot of this is the misinformation that came out in the 60s as people started to discover that mind-body-spirit connection. Mm-hmm. Like we just squashed that. And part of it was because you, if people are free in their mind, body, spirit, it's really hard to contain um, and control, right? And so much of our culture is on that containment and control. Yeah. Oh my God. Yes. That, and that resonates with me so much because, you know, I've come up personally through a lot of very controlled and contained environments um, that were toxic and some of the most um, healing experiences I've had have been in a space of like no container um, and no no constriction. And usually that is really possible through yoga, meditation, and psychedelics. You know, like the guy took some mushrooms and walked through my neighborhood and through at the golden hour, and I got to experience like all of Portland in bloom in this whole other way that I wouldn't have been able to if I hadn't, uh, if I had been like still with the neurological inhibitors that go away when psilocybin is added, you know? And so now when I go walk through the, through the neighborhood, I can, I can recall that 
and um, and that experience stays and gets to be integrated into my life. Like everywhere I look, I can still see and feel how it was at that time. And I think like with alcohol, it deadens our experience. We forget, you know, with with some of these other substances, it's like it actually helps us, you know, process real experience in a in a much more memorable and um, integrative or integration ready way. Yeah. yeah. So thank yeah, you so much for speaking on that. <laughs> yeah, it's more available. I think integration is possible. You know, um, a friend who used psychedelics for the first time said to me, it was hilarious. It was winter and they're going to be inside. And I was like, well, make sure you have interesting, cool things around. <laughs> like just mm-hmm. anything they would, yeah. I wanted to cue them to like, you know, have things to play with essentially. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, they had all this stuff. What they ended up just, he, he became completely obsessed with, with was that somebody brought a pint of strawberries. And <laughs> he's going to go, I spent at least two hours staring at strawberries and just tripping on the, just the notion of strawberry, like the way they look, the way they're, <laughs> how they're like no other and, he, and he's like I you know and to this day he still talks he calls it you know like the strawberry threshold of, of like, <laughs> crossing into this other way of looking and this is, I think you just pointed out the thing that's really hard I, I don't know about people who use alcohol but I do not have a sharpened sense senses when I, I'm drinking it's quite the opposite right so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just fuzzy and a mess <laughs> I can't see clearly and I think what people have a hard time understanding about psychedelics because of all that misinformation that's out there is that I, I would say that once you drop acid for the first time, you take mushrooms for the first time or even MDMA, there's a little bit of like, ooh, ooh, this is weird, right? This is different. Yeah. Uh, uh. And if you just or with somebody who's good and says, just roll with that and you do you immediately know, oh, that was anxiety. And you can see it. Like the very first thing you can, everybody I've ever taken through their first trip and sees is, oh, that is anxiety. And I can put that over there. And that tool alone is like, oh my, you can take that with you the rest of your life, right? And, you yeah. Know, yeah. When you have fear, it's like, oh, I don't have to be in the fear. <laughs> the fear right. is, you know, but I don't have to be controlled by fear. And so for me, so much about psychedelics is coming to know myself that way. Like I grew up in a lot with a lot of fear and I was like, whoa, a lot of anxiety, you know, a lot of stress. And it's like, wow, I don't have to feel that. I can choose just to walk right around that, which I think yoga is another way of reaching that. There's all these different practices, you know, meditation, it'll take you there, but um, therapy. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. Yeah. So going back, I'm going to come full circle back to that notion of the way that we um I think adopted some drugs into therapeutic um, I don't know, epistemologies is a, you know, the way I want to say it, just the way of knowing that drug is as a therapy. And so marijuana became acceptable first, you know, it's medical marijuana. <laughs> I remember saying medical marijuana. What the hell? Right. Like, what is that? <laughs> and I grew up in it. You know, I grew up in Humboldt County in the seventies where all the marijuana was <sighs> I'm like, is there such a thing as medical marijuana? Is that time evolution? <laughs> yeah. But similarly, I feel like psychedelics we just, you know, I'm glad that they're becoming legalized for therapeutic use, but I'm really anxious about the fact that they're becoming controlled by medical practitioners. Like, I'm, mm. that's how I want to see that drug go. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, actually. That was going to be one of my questions, if you had thoughts on that. And, um, you know, all respect to MAPS and the work they've done and Rick Doblin. 
one of my heroes, but like I do share some of those concerns too as we go down this road about what a complete medicalization of psychedelics looks like and what other experiences that leaves off the table for people and their ability to access it. And it comes from such good intentions. So I first met Rick Doblin at this, um, we were invited to the symposium. We were both speaking at the symposium for end of life. And, and the, the question mm-hmm. before the symposium was, would our psychedelics be part of the end of life experience? And oh, I listened to all these amazing people speak all day long. And there was just one, I mean, it was, it was literally like 10 hours of just amazing presentations of research, but also people from organizations, all, all these different, you know, people from hospice. And, and I was the very last one to go. And so I got up there and I thought, I've had this question all day long. I'm just going to open with it. It's not how I intended to start. But I said, you know, if psychedelics are so great, why would we want people to wait to the end of their life to experience them? Mm-hmm. and it just shut the room up and I didn't intend for it to it wasn't like a screw you kind of comment I was like I'm seriously asking this question because all day long I've been hearing this how can we make it available mm-hmm. at the end of life and I'm like how can we make it available when they want it earlier in their lives so that the end yeah. of life doesn't have to be the aha moment right <laughs> more prepared for the end of life because they've been having these experiences all along the way but what had happened, and this is, I think, how that medicalization of substances happens, is people in good intention say, this would be really a great application here. And then because of the systems we have, the hegemonies we have, they just go full steam toward let's make that application happen. And MAPS, all power to MAPS for getting mm-hmm. you know, the Goblin has devoted his life to this. But I asked him that question. He was there. And I said, so, you know, I just got to ask, like, why do we have to wait? And I'm really concerned about the medical authority that you're going to put around this drug. And he, he gave me a really good answer. And then later, um, one of the attorneys from MAPS uh, Ismail Ali, who's just phenomenal, said, look, you know, we worked really hard to have it be a B Corp. It's not a C Corp. It's not a mm. for-profit. It's about bringing money and making it available to other people. So in order to get it, make it acceptable, just like with marijuana, in order to make it acceptable, you had to put it in this one container because we have this one container, which is medical application, or you have a card or insurance that gets you that thing, or trying to, you know, already put in place the steps to get beyond that. Mm. Because, Baby steps, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that, it really I appreciate that because, you know, obviously, like talking about medical benefits of these substances is one of the ways that I think many of us who've been able to make inroads and in talking to resistant people are able to do it. We're like, OK, but like, let's talk about the medical uses. And um, and I, I do think it, as the next generation has like a way better grasp on this. The idea of health as being um, mental, physical, spiritual, psychological. And so when we talk about medical uses, um, if we're able to keep moving forward, like if I can think of pleasure as having medical benefit, I know there's no such thing as original thought. Other people (laughs) have also thought of this and probably I'm guessing I don't have kids, but I'm guessing the next generation is going to come up with a greater understanding of the power of pleasure as a medical, uh, you know, a medical benefit. Um, so do you think that the, like the ways that the medical community is like even defining what constitutes good health is, is shifting along with this and how? Yeah, that's such an interesting conversation. So I, I, I um, my primary a physician is a naturopath, and she and I are talking today mm-hmm. because I am going through ta-da, the menopause. 
and then I don't know, it was, it was like, it's like this thing that nobody talks about and it's like women skulk around in alleys and talk to each other about menopause and but it's like <laughs> nobody talked to me about it when I was younger so when it hit me like a ton of bricks three months ago I was like what is wrong with me why I'm suffering more from you know like I don't even have COVID why do I feel like this you know it's just it was mm. It took me a long time to even recognize what it was. And I mentioned this because my naturopath laughs at me because she's like, well, I don't know how you couldn't recognize hot flashes. I'm like, well, once the hot flash, I knew what the hot flash was. But first I felt like I was just melting. Like, you know, like mm-hmm. I didn't have an experience. So I wasn't having sweats or anything else. Anyway, I didn't recognize it right away for what it was. But then once I did, I could look back over the last year and a half and think, good God, I wish I'd realized this earlier because boy, have I been miserable for a long time. And it would have been nice not to suffer. And she and I talk about that. It would be nice not to suffer. And I'm like, so there's, it would be nice not to suffer. Like, you know, not suffering is some very baseline level for me. And then up from that is, it would be really great to feel good. And she said, were you having good days? I'm like, yeah, there'd be some days I wake up feeling myself, like my energy and I'm sharp and I'm ready to go and slept well, but they're very few compared to the other days. Right. And so I think one of the things that happens, and this is, you know, medicine doesn't study women's health very well at all. So that aside (laughs) um you know we change like what we think of as feeling good and pleasure changes and and it really in my lifetime i'm 57 has changed a lot like what i you know i used to really love stimulants it's like and i think now as my hormonal soup is changing it's like that's not as interesting to me as other things although i sometimes still do them for fun but I think isn't it so among the things we don't talk about in terms of pleasure and health and well-being is that it's mutable and changeable and it's circumstantial mm-hmm. and it's yeah. all those things and I know my son who's 24 he and his friends definitely have a better handle on that they're like you know today it's like this and I think for them it's because they were so scrutinized as children by the you know anxiety industry and other industries that they're used to reflecting constantly like where am I and how am I today mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually a good health practice, right? And, mm. and this goes back to, you know, so pleasure doesn't have to be like intoxication or getting loaded. It can be simply feeling better. Yeah, feeling baseline. As someone who feels like my life is a constant effort to get to baseline, mm-hmm. I can definitely relate to that. I'm curious, and this is a huge question, but um, and there's probably so many directions you could take this, but why do you think we are, especially in a culture where we do so blatantly self-medicate and we do, you know, commodify pleasure in our leisure time and, you know, even some of the substances like alcohol that can get us to like these, you know, sort of ecstatic states? Like, why are we so shitty at talking about pleasure or recognizing it as a valid experience, much less ecstatic experiences? Yeah, can we blame it on only the Puritans or is there something else? <laughs> They have their share. <laughs> they have their share. <laughs> so, okay, so I'm, I'm just going to like ecstaticism, right? Which is, this, you know, there's certain, certain spiritual practices that in there that are um, in religious groups that kind of come under that, that heading of the ecstatics, right? And mm-hmm. there are people who seek that um, simply spiritually. Um, and then, you know, like, whether it's a whirling dervish or whether it's, you know, like there's, there's these these practices that people have to take them to a place that to me, I would call it ecstatic. They may not call it ecstatic, but it's, um, it's a, it's a place of intensive experience and then release, right? Mm-hmm. So, so mm-hmm. spiritual release to this and connection. 
I, in, you know, the Pentecostals like have this experience. Mm-hmm. And there's like all these different practitioners of this, right? And I think it's so interesting that um, that again, and for me, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna place a lot of it, all, a lot of the weird ideas we have about drugs and drug use back at the feet of alcohol, mm-hmm. because had opium and um, heroin and you know, morphine, morphine, heroin, and I'm thinking the first three that kind of came through in cocaine been the drugs that became normalized for us because they were introduced, you know, alcohol had been around, but people were drinking alcohol like water, right? And the temperance movement, mm-hmm. like, we mm-hmm. need to be drunk all day long because you're beating your children and your women. Mm-hmm. We had had these other drugs, like what would we be like? I'm sure there would be equally as many mm-hmm. issues and problems, but it, it, I always wonder about that because we take alcohol. Alcohol is so naturalized for us mm-hmm. culturally that it's hard to imagine, even though we had prohibition for a minute, uh, we didn't want to live without it clearly. It's hard mm-hmm. to imagine any kind of drug experience without that as a baseline. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so, you know, like my great grandfather and grandfather made wine in the basement, you know, and it's like, mm-hmm. maybe, you know, people like alcohol is such a part, it's such a cultural part of our lives. And if you grew up in, in a European family, like I did, you know, they teach you to drink alcohol by putting a little bit, a little wine in your water, you know, when you're a kid for special occasions and you get more and more as you get older until you actually have a glass, a little tiny juice glass of wine, you know, these are, they teach you how to taste it, how to appreciate it, and, mm-hmm. and that. Mm-hmm. But in the United States, it's sort of like, you can't have this till you're 21. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. you know, go off and get loaded and drive somewhere. <laughs> right? Or right. do that. And <laughs> I mentioned this because I think the whole notion of ecstaticism and just the exciting feeling of it. I mean, honestly, if you talk to those teenagers who are drinking for the first time, I think the ecstaticism is having something that was withheld. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and doing something you're not supposed to do. And I smoked pot before I drank and I mean, that's why I don't like alcohol very much, but, um, mm. I had much more ecstatic experience with marijuana, you know, sitting in a redwood grove and like looking up these beautiful trees for the first mm. time when I was high than I did the first time I drank where it tasted crappy and I didn't feel good, mm-hmm. but everybody around me was having the ecstatic experience with the alcohol. Right. And, and so I, I think this goes back to the notion of vocabulary. Like, what are we talking about when we, when we talk about pleasure? I think there's a many, a whole dissertation to be had in here where, you just go, I would like to hear thousands of drug users talk about their drug experience and describe it, right? And mm-hmm. have a vocabulary that would have like, you know, three-dimensional sort of sensibility. Because the mm-hmm. statism for me really is, is um, it takes you out of yourself, right? And that yeah. goes to that spirituality we were talking about. That presence is, um, is a huge piece of... Uh, what I think we're resisting in this culture. Like we really don't like to be present. We will do almost anything to avoid being present. And a lot of the substances, I think alcohol is one of the substances, maybe not the only, I mean, plenty of substances take us out of being present, but alcohol is so accessible and it's such like an effective deadener of our, um, of our present experience that it's, I think we don't take enough into account the fact that the reason why we want to deaden some of this experience and some of this present is because we are in a fairly toxic cultural culture and society. And of course we want to deaden some of that experience instead of being more present with it. Cause the more present we are with it, the less 
okay it feels you know the more we like lie under a tree and feel like we are part of the tree the less good little capitalists we're going to be um and the less we're going to fit into a culture that wants us to be constantly focusing on our goals and our achievements and our future and not our present culture of me (laughs) yeah 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 and I feel very fortunate that I went to graduate school at 22 in Santa Cruz, California, because I feel like I got introduced mm, to that sort yeah. of groovy alternative, uh, many different ways, paths of getting to a place, but there was very much a de-emphasis on accumulation of goods, but an emphasis on community and accumulation of experience and, and reciprocity and um, abundance you know, through reciprocity. Mm. And I, I agree with you. I think culturally we're going, you know, we're not, that's not what capitalism is about. And, and, and I think we're seeing right now with the cultural reckoning we're having right now, it's so patently clear that um, the haves and have nots are, you know, are further apart than ever and that most people are have nots. And yet we're striving, striving, striving in this individualistic vein, right? And so I think you're right that the, se- the experiences and the substances that bring us closer together um, are the ones that are really atypical where we are and how we are and that and that becomes it, it takes a person that you know I guess that's a different kind of pleasure is maybe escaping that space or discovering another one but it also takes a lot of fortitude to sort of come back then and exist in this toxic stew <laughs> where we are and to figure out how to bring that that present that notion that you said of being present back with you in ways that are you know that aren't hard I think of the next generation um my son's generation how anxious they are Mm-hmm. I was growing up in this world that age. Like mm-hmm. I was blissfully unaware. I think of things that he's much more aware of, and his his cohort are. And mm-hmm. my God, the anxiety is just crippling. And I'm like, did we have that anxiety, and we just didn't know what to call it, or is are, mm-hmm. is there just more reasons to be anxious now? And Could and be yes, that, and <laughs> yeah, right. And and but to be present to that is really hard. You know, like to be present and open to that is hard. It's a really interesting um, thing. When I teach my drug class, the very first thing that happens is always four or five students who will come to me and say, I want to get off um, the ADHD medicine. I've been on since forever, you know, and I'm like, well, that's a process. Let's talk about how, you know, like all people yeah. as part of your team as you decide whether you even want to do that. But it kind of breaks my heart because several of them say, I don't even know myself away from this thing. Wow. And, um, yeah. There's a great documentary called Take Your Drugs. I don't know if you've seen it on Netflix. And it's mm. about about being forced to take those drugs. And take your drugs as a parent yelling at the teenager, take your drugs, you know, because you're, you're mm-hmm. behaving badly. Right. So, so, so there's just so much of an emphasis on self-control rather than being present, right? Like there's a certain alternative to being present is this notion of self-control, which is interesting because it takes a lot of discipline to be present, but that's not what we yeah. <laughs> right. right oh my goodness yeah meditation and yoga require so much um so much discipline and I feel like those are some of the you know ancient most effective ways of of being present of you know being in whatever version of reality we're in I guess wow. and it I'm I'm curious um how do we reconcile with the fact that 
you know, we have this society that forces us to use like these devices, right, that take us immediately out of being present. I, I'm, you're probably better at putting words around this than I am, whereas I was just like, I forgot about my phone for five hours. And, you know, someone mentioned it at one point, And I was like, what? Well, I don't want to talk to my phone. I just want to talk to this tree. <laughs> like, and um, I'm, I'm curious if there is like, um, you know, better ways to talk about this sort of phenomenon than the awkward way I just talked about it. <laughs> My favorite book I've read this year is The Overstory. Have you read it? Mm-hmm. Read the Powers About Trees. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, no. but clearly I need to investigate good. it. Yeah. Yes. Novel of the year for me. I'm Richard Power, The Overstory. And in it, it's a, so uh, it is a series of short stories at the beginning um, that are each about a person's relationship to a tree, like an epic relationship to a tree. Mm. And they're all different and really cool. And then at some point they all start to interweave and becomes a novel at the end. And it's just, oh, that's awesome. It's mind blowing. Wow. But mm. what was so clear throughout is just, is, um, it's historical, it comes forward in time, but also, um, people from different cultures that, there's this constant of the tree in our relationship to these growing things, right? And um, it, there's a reason I think we, we call it escaping to nature. <laughs> like, what are, what are we escaping? <laughs> it's like, well, we're escaping mm. these and, you know, this. Mm. Yeah. Watch. I, when I was in college, I had a friend who, whenever we went out to go tripping, he would put a little piece of tape. I was habitual. I still am a habitual watch wearer. And he put a little piece of tape on my, uh, like masking tape on my watch face. And be like, okay, <laughs> we're out of time now. <laughs> yeah. I'm work in the morning. He's like, it'll be fine. You know? <laughs> <And so laughs> the morning is so far away. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think that notion of, like he he was really he was a great spirit guide for me early on we were the same age but he was clearly much more involved in terms of letting go than I was and and I think that notion that 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 what we naturally gravitate toward when we are in a state that we feel is healthy for us uh especially if it's um produced by or supported by drug use is a really interesting thing to watch because I have friends who are programmers who just uh will their minds will explode and they will go create really cool things and they'll be spending time in front of the screen because that's how they do their thing. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I'm like, let's go out to the woods. They're like, I'm just going to sit here and do this thing. You know, and, and, mm-hmm. and so it's taught me that like we all have a different relationship to these things. Like for me, the computer and the phone, are, like my phone pings sometimes I find myself getting agitated. I'm like, ah, oh, who is bothering me? <laughs> and I'm thinking, who's trying to contact me? Like how lovely you. I'm like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot about me <laughs> but I I, I I mean to answer your question I think it, it oh gosh for some people they want to go out with a group and beat drums in the woods for other people they can just go for a walk in the neighborhood for me I just want to go stare at a body of water and that's really that is as good as taking a drug for me right and so it's mm. it can be all these different things that bring us back to ourselves um, and I really like that some of the tools that we have to do that and to bring us pleasure are um, ones that will also make us high. You know, I, I actually mm-hmm. think that's a lovely thing. So I'm, I'm, I'm pushing a little bit against in my own language, um, essentializing the notion of substances that might, that we might associate with being more present as things that are better. Mm-hmm. Um, there are friends I have who really love to inject heroin will say, you know, like I'm, I right. feel like that, that space of that nod is the most important thing for me. 
Um, mm-hmm. There are people who have a, a balanced relationship to it, right? And so it's kind of interesting. I, I'm, I'm trying to open my thinking to what is pleasure. And as you were talking earlier, and this is this is kind of feels like a non sequitur, but I want to say it before I forget. Um, I spent a lot of time in France in my 20s, and there is a culture that's into pleasure in, mm-hmm. in some ways, and they're very uptight in other ways. But boy, you that you know, like they will talk about a cigarette or you know this glass of wine or that painting or that person. Um, and they have a very lush vocabulary of pleasure because it's not verboten. Pleasure is, is, is to be, you know, like I, uh, a family friend who they have small children and they're teaching the kids about pleasure, the pleasure mm-hmm. during mm-hmm. and wines and cheeses and things. And, 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 and interestingly, you know, their portions are smaller because <laughs> they're taking mm-hmm. time with being with those things, right? which is really kind of coming from American culture, kind of blew my mind, like that's dinner. But then if you took your time and ate it, it was really satisfying, right? Instead of like mm-hmm. a of pasta. Mm-hmm. So I think pleasure and being present and all those notions are so variable. And we hit, we hit the one, the balance, the alchemy that works for us. Um, mm-hmm. And I try to even believe that people who like to get drunk regularly that might be an okay thing for like my partner does not get hung over unless he really drinks way 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 too much but he can get like happily drunk next time be totally fine we'll go on a ride i'm like are you like polluted he's like no i'm great (laughs) (laughs) i don't know i i think does it make him more present i know i'm gonna ask him that question when i get off this podcast (laughs) we expect a report back (laughs) Yeah, I, I'm just trying to be aware that people have different kinds of experiences of substance mm. and cultures and contexts. Yeah, I know we've started talking about that more in the reform movement broadly, sort of not privileging certain substances over others in our discourse. Um, I mean, that's something I still struggle with, too. But yeah, I think that that's a really important thing to be conscious of, especially as we move into a more, you know, move into more reform efforts like we saw in Oregon and things like that. So more equitable spaces. Yeah. I mean, I'll know, I'll know we've truly gotten to a reform movement when people are, you know, agitating for the use of smoking meth or whatever else it might be <laughs> as much as anything yeah, else. Right. They don't be serious about it. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I don't know. I'll, I'll admit sugar is my drug of choice. Number one, top always. And it's probably the most toxic thing that I use. So, you know, like it's, it's interesting. Um, yeah, all this conversation about pleasure and all this stuff is really interesting to me because it's yeah. the only one that I crave intensely when I stop, like the point where I, you know, constant. Yeah. Nicotine for me, so. Mm. Even though I, I relate to sugar for sure, yeah. yeah. This is such interesting stuff that um, I don't think, I have anywhere near enough conversations about this and I have a lot of... <laughs> yeah. Me either, <laughs> Me either. yeah. Well, the thing that you just said that I feel like is important um, is the idea of um, not not compartmentalizing these experiences as, um, you know, the one effect being good versus the other effect being bad. Um, and, you know, as Sarah and I have been talking recently about, you know, what the what the matriarchy or what the rise of the antithesis of dominator culture looks like. I think it is like being more receptive to the multiplicity of experience and what you're talking about and what you're researching is really, um, really powerful in accessing that, I think. 
And it's also, thank you. And I, I find it hard. I mean, sometimes I, um, I feel like I'm walking a line sometimes because mm-hmm. often, well, first of all, because I, I think so much of the culture around drug research is about addiction mm-hmm. and it can be really upsetting to people um, to try to displace uh, real, very real issues around suffering with this mm-hmm. narrative of pleasure. Right. And so I'm super mm-hmm. sensitive. So I think that's part of yeah. part of that language for me and that, that sort of let's recognize everybody has their own experience of things and, and, and that, those different experiences form a collective, going back to what you were saying, Sarah, about this kind of collective knowledge we have around drug use and the vocabulary you both talked about, like what would those vocabularies look like? Um, I, I have friends who are serious smackhead, they would call themselves junkies, uh, you know, who are like, can wax on and on and on about the pleasures of opiates. And, um, and that's part of it for them, even though at this point they're really trying just to avoid withdrawal. Mm-hmm. but it's still the motivation is still that connection to that you know the pleasure that they remember and associate with that drug so it's really it's a very complex topic pleasure like you know there you know like for example there are people who for whom pain is pleasurable right you know mm-hmm. so so understanding this kind of three-dimensional spectrum of ple- what pleasure can be I'm not even going to try, but I, I'm trying to recognize that there is one. And I think your idea, I, I really like the idea of thinking about like in this matriarchal, you know, alternative universe. Um, mm-hmm. I'm on Star Trek now in my spaceship. <laughs> or Charlotte Perkins Gilman, like her land or something. Um, <laughs> or just certain cultures that are really matriarchal. It's it's super interesting to see what, what they value in terms of pleasure and um, and what they value in terms of teaching people the autonomy to recognize their own pleasure. Um, one of my fun, one of the fun books I have read in the last couple of years, it just totally surprised me because it wasn't as much like her first book that I thought it would be is um, Adrian Marie Brown's pleasure activism. Have you read that book? I haven't, but I've been wanting to. I really like, recommend it. You can just pick it up and read parts of it. So it's a good one just to have lying around the house. Yeah. It doesn't really require certain all the way through, um, which I love about her, but it's just these little dives into uh, everything from self-pleasure. Her whole thing is like, look, until you learn how to pleasure yourself sexually, until you really go there and understand and explore and spend lots of time loving yourself, how else are you going to understand pleasure in the world? Like you have this primary, like, you know, universal pleasure within you. And I was like, wow, that's radical. And he also talks about pleasure as a measure of freedom, which I, you know, and and Mm. even that that one context, it's like, how free can you be to explore your own pleasure? But if we recognize pleasure as a measure of freedom, then we have to recognize, you know, that, yeah, that people, all different kinds of experiences are going to bring pleasure and that, that for people that is freeing. And that's, that's me with that matriarchal um, vein would be in that sense of that kind of freedom. Yeah, that pursuit of freedom is, you know, whether it's through sex or drugs, it's something that's very much, um, I mean, demonized is, you know, one aspect of it, but also just really looked down upon. Like, Especially when you put them together. It's like, whoa. I know, right. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. A, yeah. Yeah, what's wrong with you that you want to take MDMA and go fuck for hours? Like, what's wrong with you that you don't? <laughs> exactly. That was exactly my like. I feel like it is. It's so interesting how we have 
we have switched in our culture, like what we're horrified by and what we're excited by. Like somebody's like, I just got a new job where I'm going to be, you know, working 40 hours a week in, you know, in an office. And we're like happy for them because they have this great job. But then meanwhile, it's like, what are we actually celebrating here? You know, like, what are, and then when they're like, oh, I'm going to, you know, take some MDMA and go fuck for, for, for several days, you know, that is somehow that something that we feel like, like, oh, don't, don't talk about that. Like, that's, don't like why would you think that's something that we could all celebrate with you like that should be like I I think that we should all be celebrating our our pleasure experiences and our pleasure discoveries much more so do you see do you see a change in and you know over the course of your um you know work over the course of the years do you do you see a change in the conversation around that I think I do, but only because I think the lead drugs that we've we've moved to legalize are weed and psychedelics. And mm-hmm. marijuana and psychedelics are drugs that bring what I would call very soft pleasures. Um, and, and soft, by soft, I mean gentle, um, but also um, interestingly less threatening. I mean, I think psychedelics are very threatening still to some people, but but when presented in the context of, oh, but you can cure your PTSD. Right. Um, mm-hmm. but, seeing as a softening and a connecting and an opening agent. Um, I, I am pretty fast. I don't know if you, you know, the protocol is pretty interesting, right? So people do therapy um, for a period of a month or so, and then they have a dose of a guided trip and, and then another month or two of integration of that, right? So really mm-hmm. working on understanding what was, what, what happened and then potentially like another dose, but yeah, so so it's it's not about pleasure, right? It's really about coming to understand and experience and, and that sort of mm-hmm. addressing fear and recognizing you can control your fear. Um, and maybe getting back in contact with your body for people who have PTSD. I'm reading um, Written on the Body right now, which is a book about mm. on the body. And, uh, it's I just, just finished reading that. Did you? Yeah, I kind of started yeah. and put it aside and picking it up again. I'm really glad I picked it up again. Um, I have a hard time making it through a book only because life is so busy, but uh, pleasure. Mm-hmm. So my first pleasure in life was reading for like, I would go to the library and get 10 books and sit down and just read them all, all weekend long. Like that was one of my yeah. greatest. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Like an early consciousness changing event. Mm. But, but I think in that book, he's so interested in um, how, we get disconnected from our bodies, right? And all the, and he's so sharing all the biological systems that um, kind of get, you know, get reworked. Your, neuro- your neurology just works differently. And and the pleasure that, I'm gonna come back to that baseline, like pleasure, I think the reason that psychedelics and marijuana have led us, you know, to these medical um, applications is that they're really about connecting us with ourselves. Um, so people who are, taking opiates for pain, which is a terrible way to treat pain, mm-hmm. right? You know, might be able to bring the pain down and recognize you're not going to get rid of pain, like have a relationship mm-hmm. with pain in your body, right? You know, you're not going to mm-hmm. deaden the pain completely. So I think in some ways, I'm not sure if they're about pleasure so much as they're about, about knowing yourself and understanding mm-hmm. what your body is capable of, what your mind is capable of. And maybe that's why there are opening salvos. <laughs> yeah. I like that. And, you know, also ultimately treating um, trauma and anxiety and 
pain in um, more integrating ways is, you know, it's pleasurable, it's pleasurable, you know, treating, treating uh, trauma and releasing trauma is pleasurable. You know, I, as a post-traumatic stress um, survivor, I, I deal with that on a regular basis. And so, for example, you know, yesterday I had a beautiful walk through the flowers. And then at one point I just like really felt some trauma releasing from myself. Like I was, I had like a small conversation and I just felt like certain, um, certain trauma blocks just breaking and releasing. And then all of a sudden I was like sweating and cold and it was a beautiful sunny day, you know? And, um, and then I kind of like wrapped myself up in a blanket for a while and felt that. And, and knowing that I had the space to feel it felt good and that I was safe to feel it. And then coming out of it and feeling like, oh, I just released a bunch of trauma. Now what, I can, what else can I do now in life now that I've just released some of this? Like, it felt amazing. And I went on and had like a lovely rest of my evening you know, and it was, it was integrated and it wasn't like pleasurable experience, not pleasurable experience. It was, they were, it was all together and it was all combined with the, you know, what many would consider to be a therapeutic trauma release exercise. It's not different. It's, <laughs> so that was really amazing there maybe without that right and I think that's what's so interesting is like understanding yourself enough to know that whatever arises this goes back to being present whatever arises arises and that is what is and mm-hmm. you're not going to push it away but you can try <laughs> but that will mm-hmm. make it worse probably right and so that notion of being with it is um it's so interesting that that then leads to release, which is then pleasurable, right? And then mm-hmm. I feel like it's sort of the opposite of how we're taught to take care of ourselves. Like, oh, you have a headache, take these pills. You have a this, you know, whatever it is, you know, um, mm-hmm. you have pain in your body, stop moving. <laughs> it's like, no, 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 do not stop moving. Right. Uh, yeah, it's so much of our, our I don't know, our, our knowledge and you can't see me podcasters but I'm doing scare quotes here this <laughs> <laughs> is really just completely backwards um yeah. so I like the idea that that's integrated and that it leads to on, on the other side it leads to a sense of pleasure both in that oh you could take yourself through that experience safely and you could experience it and then it feels good on the other side to drop a little you know yeah mm-hmm. yeah that's beautiful that's really beautiful yeah that was a beautiful beautiful story um, there, there's another dimension of pleasure at the beginning of this conversation we probably wouldn't even have considered. Yeah. yeah. The idea of relief. I'm, yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, I, you know, I knew that we were going to be having this conversation today when I did that yesterday. And I was like, oh, I wonder what other, what conversation this, this is going to bring up. Because it is, it's like, I, I look at all substance use as being a um, potential, as being able to be integrated into all of life and I and not everybody sees that but I was very excited about being able to you know follow up my experience with a conversation with somebody who does see it that way and uh, you know is trying to normalize seeing it that way yeah yeah I I really feel like we're on this planet to know ourselves and know each other and know the planet right and each other I mean like all the things on the planet and yeah but it really begins here because you can't do it here you know like 
<laughs> famous having a conversation with some biology uh, colleagues of mine early in my career where I was like, well, science is one way of knowing. And they were like, what? <laughs> like, yeah, no, sorry. I can throw some postmodernism at you right now and talk about yeah. 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 That is always mind blowing for people. <laughs> and we, and they're very dear friends and we're friends like, you know, almost 30 years later, but uh, to this day, like, you know, they are entomologists, biologists, like they do are, they're, in the lab every day doing their science and they're, they're convinced this is the way of knowing and this is the way of knowing and I'm like wow I, I, you know god what a, what a tiny aperture on the world you have <laughs> it's like, it's mm-hmm. yeah let's widen it up you know <laughs> yeah, widen- <laughs> yeah for sure mm-hmm. you guys it's been such a great conversation yeah. so great thank I'm you for so being glad here. you made the time to come on so and by the way, thank you for letting me get past my migraine last week, part of, part of the menopause. And I keep saying menopause as much as I can. I'm, I'm like this poster girl for menopause right now because I feel like women don't mm-hmm. talk about it. And it's like this horrible secret. Talk about things you can't talk about, you know, the science. Right. Yeah, it's, it's just like, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, like, now it's, you know, some of my older friends that are now going through menopause and some of these things that I'm realizing, like, wow, I really don't know what to expect. <laughs> and it's really kind of creepy because I'm, you know, like 10 years, I'll be 50. So, like, it's coming and I have no, no idea, you know. Yeah. A lot of things happen earlier on that you kind of write off to other experiences and then you'll mm-hmm. possibly look back and go, oh, that was all part of this continuum of this journey I'm on. But, you know, yeah. it doesn't Turned get menopause. Yeah. yeah. Which... Yeah, lots of things. <laughs> lots and lots yeah. of things. Yeah, so uh, check it out. Like, look into it, I say. Talk to your, if you have a really good healer in your life. Yeah. yeah. Um, where can folks find you? Oh, they can find me at, uh, well, let's see, if you want to reach out to me, you can find me at Bad Academic on Twitter. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> um, and I'm at the University of Washington, Tacoma, if they want to reach out to me in a more direct fashion. <laughs> you can find me there. Awesome. Well, we'll Fantastic. put all, all those links in the link to your book, which I would highly recommend, folks. Yes. Again, it's called Hide, Drugs, Desire, and a Nation of Users. Dr. Ingrid Walker, thank you so much. This was an amazing conversation. I had so much fun. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, both of you, Sarah and Joy. I love yeah. your mom. Thanks. Yeah, have the have the best uh, the best of experiences, even when they are the worst of experiences. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the next conversation. Amen. <laughs> Never thought I'd see the day when it all ended. Never thought I'd be afraid.
Then you know you can be trusted with it. That was so great. That was awesome. That was the medicine I needed. I am so happy I asked her to come on. I love Ingrid. She's fucking rad. Yeah, she's fantastic. And I love everything she had to say. Um, And the ways that, like, especially, not only because, like, nobody else is talking that way Mm -hmm. that I hear regularly, especially in academia, but also because of, you know, just all the conversations that we've been having lately as far as, like, reframing the ways we look at what we think of as reality, you know? Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, there were so many other things, too, I thought I could talk about. So, like, you know, I'm all into that Connor Habib podcast. He talks about, like, how sex is the first, like, people talk a lot about drug policy reform. He's all for that. But he's like, we don't talk about, like, effort to control sex is the first effort to control our consciousness. Yeah. That changes our consciousness almost more profoundly than any drug. And, like, Mm -hmm. all the efforts to control sex are part of a larger effort to control consciousness that also manifests in the drug war. that's real I think that is completely on point you know especially when it's considered when we consider about the ways that you know um drugs that make sex more pleasurable are often even more stigmatized than the ones that make um uh other experiences more pleasurable and as I was saying that I was just thinking like how it's not you know which drugs are legal for sex viagra Viagra, like uh, some whatever is going to help um, the dominator culture continue to dominate. Mm-hmm. But it, that's legal. But, you know, the drug that you take that will allow you to feel sex as like a completely integrated emotional, physical, spiritual experience is um, is illegal and is super stigmatized. So, yeah, it's all tied in together, I think. Um, I think you're completely right. And I want to keep exploring this more and more, just not only on this podcast, but in life. It's, I think, some of the most powerful work we can do. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of like when I was talking about my pansexual sex magic walkabout. (laughs) Like, I'm not kidding. Like, I actually really do want to go on this sort of sexual experiences as a way to explore my own consciousness. That's really something I want to do. (laughs) Like... Same. It's, it is magic, you know, everything, everything we do is actually in its own way magic. And, uh, and we can, we can like lean into some of the more intense experiences, um, in ways that are like way more conscious and empowering than, um, than we're conditioned to, you know, we're conditioned to like, like slutting is supposed to be some kind of negative thing as opposed to, um, you know, seeking healthy consensual pleasure, uh, you know, is, is absolutely some of the healthiest, um, activity we can engage in. Yeah, definitely.
What the Folk is co-produced and co-hosted by Sarah Baranowskis and Joy Damiani. Our guest on this episode has been Dr. Ingrid Walker, and our featured music is Dreaming Awake and The Waking World by Lola Jean Darling and Miserine by Lauren Flynn. Links to their albums for downloads and purchase and all of those things are in the show notes, so please check those out and support them. And thank you so much for supporting us. We hope you'll be back for the next episode, which is sure to be all kinds of fun and exciting and feature music that we don't even know yet. Find out with us. It'll be great. Woot. In the meantime, take care of yourselves and uh, let's all be the revolution we want to see in the world.